Chapter 5 Morning, sleepyhead, mum greets me as I come downstairs, I'm making some coffee, do you want some? Good morning to you, too, I replied, nodding, where's your assistant? What's her name, Anna? Liana She went home for the holidays at the same time as Lyle, mum clicks the coffee pot on, the whirring sound of the machinery filling the room. Didn't you notice her leave? I shake my head. Looking around properly, I noticed the little things that had changed while I was gone, presumably as a result of the renovation. Mostly, there was just generally less stuff. My parents had apparently started to embrace the minimalist life, it's as if they're having a competition about how well they can hide what little they have. I know for a fact that there's a storage room somewhere, knowing them. The minimalist nativity sets are hilarious, though. My parents had elected to go the glass route, so there are a bunch of glass panes in wooden blocks scattered about the house. Daisy would have a laughing fit if she saw these. Are any of the others going to be here for Christmas? I ask Mum, Delilah probably isn't, she's still in the Philippines with the Marine Corps, last time I heard from her, but what about Dawn, Dottie, and Daisy? You girls don't talk to each other? Mum asks, a look of confusion crossing her face, I thought you were all really close. Oh, Erm, I'm busy with work a lot, and you know, I say, trying to think up excuses on the spot. It's hard to catch up with each other when you're almost never in the same place at the same time. To be perfectly honest, I had been avoiding my sisters. It was easy because we were hardly ever in the same place at the same time, but I was still avoiding them. Dawn had reached out to me in September, asking if she could crash at my place for New York Fashion Week, but I had ghosted her until she left me alone. Delilah is the only one who I actually talk to, and that's because I know she can't come to bother me in person without two weeks' notice. Oh, okay. Well, Daisy is spending Christmas with her husband in Arizona, but she might drop by on Boxing Day, Mum tells me. Dorothy is staying in Florida to train for her big race in February Dash. Dottie is finally doing the Daytona 500? I ask, the wonder in my voice, she's been dreaming of racing there since she was little, and she finally gets to do it? My little girl is accomplishing her dreams, I couldn't be prouder, Mum takes a sip of her coffee, not that I'm not proud of all of my children, you've all done really well for yourselves. Hmm. Daisy's a doctor. Dorothy is racing in the top races, Dawn's a model in Paris's Paris, Daphne. Dash, Mum goes on, and you, darling, are a corporate hedge fund manager. My little girl, a businesswoman. The coffee pot clicks as it finishes making the coffee. I don't say anything. Last night's text thread with Velma was still replaying in my head, over and over. That is less than three. Why on earth did I agree dash? Penny for your thoughts?
Mom asks as she hands me the mug. It's got sugar in it again. Velma came over yesterday. I dug out the leaflets she had given me and passed them to her. Grabbing an apple from the bowl on the counter, I start making a fruit salad for breakfast. I'm going into town to meet her later today. After ending the call with Michaela and saying goodnight to Velma, I struggled to sleep for more than a few hours. Thank God for coffee, regardless of the sugar. I pick up the newspaper discarded on the table, presumably by Dad, to see if anything is interesting in here as I eat my fruit salad. Mum briefly scans the leaflets and nods. She's a nice girl, Velma. You kids used to be such good friends. It's a shame, really. Hmm. I wasn't listening. There was an article about some new bakery that apparently had great Instagram-able pastries. I might check it out at some point. You know, the whole affair in your junior year. And that girl, what was her name? Maddie? I look up. Exactly what I'd tried to escape from. Yes. Maddie. She was quite adorable, Mum just stares outside the window for a moment, as if the memory she has of Maddie is running around the backyard at this exact moment. She has a wistful smile on her face, which tears my heart in two, made good cookies, too. I don't need this to come back now, not when I'd been running for so long, I thought to myself. I, too, could see a shadow of a memory playing outside. A younger Velma and I push her into the pool, laughter on our faces as Maddie splashes us from below. I hurriedly finish off my fruit salad, stand up, clean up, and start to leave. I don't think I can stay here for much longer, I need to go get ready to meet Velma. Mum breaks out of her trance for a minute, acknowledges my leaving, then goes back to busying herself with whatever she had been doing prior to my entrance into the kitchen. Returning to my old bedroom, I start changing out of my pajamas and into something I can actually go outside in. Is it cold enough to wear a sweater? Why did I come back here? I slump down to the ground, my back to the dresser. I had known that it would bring back the nightmare of the past, yet here I am, having every other conversation digging up another old memory that had been buried under years of therapy and counseling. Burying my head in my hands, I contemplate crying. Instead, I check my phone. It's an hour until I need to go meet Velma. I guess it's time to get my stuff and drop off the rental car, then. Pulling myself up, I dust myself off and start getting dressed. Phone, keys, purse, glance in the mirror, and I'm ready to go. So, what are we going to do? Fred had briefed us on his situation, properly, after Daphne sat him down. Essentially, this past week a ghost, a malicious one, 
had been haunting his house and threatening to kill him and the rest of his family through notes like the one he had shown us. His father, however, is refusing to acknowledge it, let alone call the correct services to deal with it. He keeps insisting that Fred is making it up to get attention. We? I asked. Well, I'm helping you, aren't I? Even a ghost threatening his life didn't knock his egoism out of him. He stood up to make his point. I'm practically an honorary member, if not a full member. Look here, Fred, you're a client. Daphne pushed him back into his chair and leaned over him menacingly. Something about the way he had looked at Daphne was unsettling, in the worst way. We make the plans, you pay us. He scowled, fine. An awkward silence settled over the room, and a little knife of guilt stabbed my stomach. Something told me that Daphne wouldn't be like this if I wasn't there. Just a feeling, though, so it's unlikely. Daphne turned to me. Hey, Velma, any working theories about the ghost, she asked. I prayed a little to God for blessing me for such a lifesaver. I nodded and glanced at the notebook I had scribbled notes into as Fred was talking based on the note and his testimony and opened the club's laptop, another war spoil from Daphne begging the staff to quickly research and confirm. Nothing too difficult, I just needed to find the file they kept it in. I'm thinking it hears, but perhaps a more recent incarnation, given that he's only started bothering Fred in the last week. Or maybe something disturbed their sleep. I said. Daphne looked at Fred. Does any of this sound familiar? The page I was trying to load was taking forever. He shrugged, I honestly don't know. The loading icon was spinning and spinning and spinning. Very helpful of you. Maybe a Mogwai or Yuan Gue? The reference to pain and blood would suggest a Fai Tai Hong or a Kears again. Got it. I spun around the laptop, take a look at this. I hacked into your family lawyer's computer to access your family records and found some old maps of your family estate. How the hell did you hack into Michael's computer? Fred seemed slightly panicked, as though something wasn't going according to plan, what else did you find there? Oh, don't worry, I didn't go through any personal stuff, although I did stumble across some emails, as I said this. Fred's face falls, Michael hired a private investigator to see if his wife is cheating on him, so maybe be gentle with his emotions for a bit. Oh, okay, Fred's shoulders relaxed. Anyway, if you look closely here Dash, I pointed at the screen you can see there's a burial ground near your back lawn. Daphne and Fred leaned closer to see the screen. Scooby and Shaggy had long ago tuned out and were just having a competition on who could eat the most sandwiches. Is your dad doing anything in that area that might be bothering the ghosts? 
I asked, like building a pond? Digging hose? Chopping down trees? Erm, yep. Fred seemed slightly uncertain, Dad's building a pool there. And that would be the cause of the ghost disturbing you. Case closed, goodbye. Daphne snapped the laptop shut. Both Fred and I took a sharp breath, for different reasons. If my work hadn't been saved, I'm screwed. My entire chemistry project is on the line here. No. Fred slammed his hands onto the desk. Shaggy and Scooby looked up from their competition and sheepishly lowered their sandwiches. Fred looked startled at the sound and softened his stance. Please, you've got to help me get rid of the ghost. I looked towards Daphne. She was looking at me expectantly. I knew exactly what she wanted me to say, but she was going to let me decide, she had that look in her eye. I tried to get her to say it instead, it would be easier for me if I didn't have to. I suppose she just wanted Fred and I to get along. I sighed and pinched the bridge of my nose, okay. Fred's stress, which had visibly been weighing him down since he came in, dripped off him in waves. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you Dash. Yeah, yeah, save that for after we save your life, Daphne moved towards the calendar on the wall. Are you guys doing anything this weekend? We all shook our heads. Great, Fred, are your guest rooms still open? We're going to have a two-day sleepover, and there's no way I'm sleeping on your couch. Fred nodded. Perfect dash, Daphne wrote Fred's this weekend on the calendar and circled it a few times in red marker, pack your bags, gang, we're solving a mystery. Well, actually, we're purging a house dash, Shaggy tried to interject. They had been listening, at least a little. Shut up, loner, Fred's tone at once became harsh and cold. Daphne stared at him. He chuckled nervously. Joking. You better be. Chapter 6 Velma and I wander around the town, side by side, hands almost but not quite touching, basking in the commercialized Christmas festivity. She's supposed to be leading the way, but this works too. Fairy lights deck every wall, Mariah Carey blares from every store's loudspeaker, paper snowflakes plastered on every window. Kids run around, wrapped up like the presents they're awaiting in a week and a half's time, even though the forecast said it's barely going to be chilly. Various festive offers are advertised in shop windows, each trying to shout each other down through color and design. It all makes me feel slightly nauseous. Do you not like Christmas, she asks me, her nose scrunching up, what are you, a Grinch? H.M., I guess so. I suck my teeth in thought and sigh, not a big fan to be honest. Why, she queries. 
she looks down at my hand for what feels like the thousandth time. She bites her lip, undecided, but says nothing else. Well, firstly, it's hugely commercial and it's all just about making money for big business. Like the one you work for? She's got a point. Here. She gestures to a small shop front that I would never have noticed without her pointing it out. It's a two-story, brick building tucked neatly into the two buildings on either side like a small child between their parents, with an entire glass front wall so you can see inside to the hipster-style kitchen and bar. Weak, winter sunshine casts light onto the interior. Old-fashioned, bare wood round tables are littered around the shop with clusters of mismatched chairs around them. The second floor has a small terrace, and I can just make out a very yellow room leading into it, which Velma helpfully informs me is called the Sunshine Room, which is available to rent as a party venue. Apparently, there's also a tiny garden out back where the Kellers had their wedding last year. A wrought iron sign hangs above the door, the hideout. Oh. I can't help the sound escaping. I know, right? It's perfect. She opens the door for me and gestures for me to go through. Typical Velma. Way too nervous to make the first move, but has absolutely no problem with following outdated forms for politeness as if they're expected. Inside, it's incredibly cozy. The walls are painted a dark brown maroon and decorated with work from local artists. Aside from the basic tables and chairs I could see from outside, there are small armchairs placed conveniently close to heat sources to create a warm and pleasant environment for reading and sipping a cup of coffee. Well, I guess it's designed to be that way. There are bookcases on every wall and a sign proclaims it to be a swap-what-you-take situation. The whole building is like a thrift store or a cafe, everything is from everywhere and is a mismatched, odd sock haven. It's so, so perfect. A friendly, very camp waiter approaches us. Table for two? We nod and he leads us to a small table right next to one of the floor-to-ceiling windows but secluded from the rest of the cafe thanks to the stairs leading up to the sunshine room and its terrace. And the bathroom. Velma and I drape out coats onto the back of our chairs and sit down opposite one another. Velma got the Edwardian-style wooden chair and I got the 1920s-inspired chair. Our waiter shows us where the menu is and leaves us to decide. How long has this cafe been here? I ask her. Two, three years, I think. It's relatively recent, she puts down her menu, what are you having? I don't know. What's good? I order for us when the waiter returns, a hot chocolate with the usual holiday add-ons, a macchiato, and two buttercream banana cake slices, as per Velma's recommendation. Hers arrives in an adorable round-bottomed mug 
with a smear of Nutella around the edge of the mug. I honestly can't understand how she can bear that much sugar. We stayed and chatted at the cafe for a long time after our coffee cups and plates were empty, just talking about everything. I don't even know what came over me, it just felt like I could talk to her like I could to no one else. We talked about life, about growing up, about everything. After what felt like five minutes, but actually was a couple hours or so of talking, the cafe was closing. It's only one o'clock, but I guess it is a Sunday. Most places here are closed on Sundays. Lucky them. Nonetheless, the hot drinks warm us from the inside, keeping out the not really a chill chill, as we walked back to my place. Mum had texted me saying I had to bring her home for dinner. Brilliant, even this is, my parents controlling my social life is the same as it was before I left. Thank God I got out of here. Seriously, I don't get you. Velma says out of the blue as we walk along, interrupting my thoughts how could you possibly hate Christmas? Why should I have to get costly presents for family and friends to prove I care about them? I say. Velma stares at me deadpan. You could make your own presents. Pfft, yeah, right because my parents will totally appreciate my crappy little DIY gifts. I'm not six, Velma. I scoff. It's just ridiculous, the entire notion of giving gifts solely because it's apparently a dead stranger's birthday. It's not even his actual birthday either. Velma thinks hard for a minute before getting an eh, fuck it look on her face and making a U-turn. Come on, follow me, she says, glancing back. Wait, where are you going? She already strides away from me, and I need to raise my voice for her to hear me. A couple people turn around, wondering what the sound is. She doesn't slow down. Come on, pick up the pace. For a moment, I'm dumbfounded, finding myself suddenly alone. I contemplate for a second, barely a fraction of a second, of just going back to my parents, before curiosity gets the better of me and I start to run. Hey, wait up for me. The boys were already poking around the burial ground when we got there. While they were busy messing about, I started to get everything ready. I once again consulted the divination book I'd found in the library long story, double-checked I had everything and started setting it up. I had to keep returning to the book, but in the end, it only took a couple minutes, especially after Daphne helped by lighting the candles I had placed in the circle. When it was done, there was an outer ring of salt and sand, a middle ring of lit candles, I couldn't find unscented ones, so it smells very strongly of peach, space for the human circle, a star sprinkled across the circle with rose water, and the oldest map of the burial ground I could get my hands on. It's not quite the original, but it's close enough that it shouldn't matter too much. 
I gestured for the others to join me. Fred and Shaggy both ignored me until Daphne coughed meaningfully, at which point they both grinned embarrassedly and joined us in the circle. We each kneeled and held hands in a circle. I instructed them to close their eyes and keep them closed until I was done with the incantation. I took a deep breath and began to chant. Iret woy era, imes, yrcym areahm ray woy nac, doyen layer 8 fo striver pes. Imes was first on my list. I figured we should start with the easiest. No need to make this unnecessarily difficult. Hello, an extremely slow voice says from behind Fred. The oak tree behind him had developed a face and was now talking to us. The face seemed simultaneously old and young, the features seemed to be like a fluid, constantly shifting and changing. Hello. Shaggy said. I'm Shaggy, what's your dash? He had his hand out and was about to approach Imes and step out of the circles, so I grabbed his sleeve and shook my head. Stay in the circles. Shaggy pouted but did as he was told. Who are you? the voice called out. We're. I'm Fred, I live here. Fred replied, and these are my friends. Friends is a loose term. Someone's been haunting me these past couple weeks. Was it you? Imes just stared blankly at Fred for a couple seconds. And then, in a perfectly ordinary speed, why the fuck would I care about you enough to haunt you? Fred was quite clearly stunned and taken back. W.H., what? Your dad is gonna kill me, why the hell would I want to be around his snotty-nosed, narcissistic kid in my dying moments? Fred's mouth hung open, and Daphne, already sick of all this, nudged him to the side and took over the situation. Hi, Daphne here, do you know who's been haunting Fred, then? Do you think I fucking have? I keep to myself, and the others keep to themselves, too. Why don't you guys fucking leave me as well? Imes did their best to try to turn away from us which was pretty impressive given that the oak tree was literally rooted to the ground. It was clearly not a question, so when Daphne glanced at me, I nodded and cleared the incantation. As soon as it's cleared, the face disappears, and I start the second one. It's a little messy, but luckily Phoebe didn't seem to mind too much. Because she quite literally refused to get up. Oh, her ghost rose up for sure, she passed through the map and caused it to flutter a little, but she was asleep, and nothing we did would wake her up. Her dim blue glow wavered at best, and her floating, curled-up figure barely stirred when Scooby leaped through her. I felt sorry for her, it had never occurred to me that people killed in their sleep would be stuck sleeping in the afterlife. And she didn't seem to be having a very pleasant dream either. In the end, I just sent her back as it was starting to get dark, and I really, really, 
didn't want to be here anymore. Finally, it was Thomas Adams. He looked like every Confederate soldier I had seen in history textbooks and online. He was youngish, in his early twenties, unshaven, unkempt, gaunt, but tough from months of difficult living. Or the difficult afterlife, it was hard to tell. His uniform was too big for him and had buttons missing, and if history taught me anything, it was probably from a dead soldier. The woolen hat atop his head was gray and ancient. Not as ancient as the ones in museums now, but it looked as if it was more patchwork than hat. He had a white shirt, more a gray-blue than white, and had horseshoes nailed into the soles of his shoes. He also carried a small rolled-up blanket, a haversack, a cloth-covered canteen, a tin cup, and a small frying pan in a backpack-like thing on his back. He clutched the Enfield rifle in his hand, obviously stolen from a Union soldier. The bayonet and scabbard was attached to the right of his belt, and he was shot up, clearly still bearing the wounds that killed him. And he looked pissed. Chapter 7 Velma stops running outside another small shop front. A bakery, to be precise. It, too, is a two-story building with a glass front. There's a little outdoor section with three tables sheltered by umbrellas attached to the tables themselves, all fenced in with a rather ornate white wooden fence. Unlike the hideout cafe, this store is dark inside, it, too, must be closed on Sunday. The sign above the door reads a piece of cake. Velma approaches the store, rooting around for something inside her bag. What are you doing? I ask her, Velma, it's closed, why are we here? Changing your mind. Velma finds whatever she was looking for and holds it aloft. Aha! It's a small, golden key attached to a couple of other keys in a ring. She unlocks the door and steps through, much to my astonishment. How the hell does Velma have the keys to this random bakery? Without taking off her coat, she flips on the lights and heating, heads into the kitchen in the back and flips through a massive tome on the counter, leaving me in the doorway. Out of curiosity, and to escape the slight chill, I follow her. Would you rather make jammy star cookies or mince pie brownies? She wait, slow down, are we allowed in here? It's closed, right? Velma stares at me blankly for a moment and then bursts into laughter. I own this bakery. It's my job to be here. Oh. She goes back to the tome and taps a page on it. Jammy star cookies it is. She turns to me. Could you weigh out the ingredients if I get them out for you and tell you how much we need? Sure. Wash your hands first, though. She says as she goes back to the tome. I'm not a child, Velma, I say, sticking my tongue out at her. She glances up, laughs, and gestures for me to take off my coat.
She also puts on some generic holiday music, and for once it doesn't make me sick to my stomach. Velma rattles off the usual expected ingredients, butter, flour, icing sugar, etc., instructs me to leave some butter out to heat to room temperature, and asks if I can separate the egg yolks, I can, but not well. She points to the food processor in the corner and tells me to put the butter and flour from the first set of ingredients, she gave me one for filling, one for dough, into it while she reads through the recipe again. I do so, and she adds a pinch of what I presume is salt into the mixture before I blitz the lot together. When it starts to look like breadcrumbs, Velma switches it off, adds the sugar, then turns it back on again. She does this for the remaining ingredients as I just awkwardly watch, not wanting to get into her way. Eventually, she tips the dough onto the counter and directs me to knead it into a smooth ball while she lines some baking sheets with baking parchment. It's surprisingly fun to do so. Maybe it's just working together with Velma is the fun bit, we haven't done anything like this in years. Once I'm done, Velma cuts the dough ball into two, hands me one, and shows me how to pat it into a disc, then wrap to chill for a bit. She has a streak of flour on her face. I chuckle a little to myself while she's not looking. In the 30 minutes we had to wait for them to chill, Velma fixed us up with two cups of tea to drink while we chatted for a bit. We both sat at one of the tables in the back. I'm guessing it's for the staff to eat and drink given how comparably bare it is to the tables out front. It's nice to converse even more than we did at the cafe. Who's your staff here? I asked, I noticed a couple lockers in the back room. I have an apprentice. There's not many bakers in Crystal Cove, so I'm teaching Claire's little sister. We got really friendly after the drama with you. I'm sorry about that. A blush creeps up my cheeks, I thought I had escaped all of this. She waves away the apology. No need to apologize, you've been forgiven long ago. How's the tea? It's good, thank you. Makes me feel like a real old British lady. She chuckles. Absolutely my vibe. So, how long have you had this bakery? I ask, curiosity finally getting the better of me. We'd already discussed my life at the cafe to death, but when we talked about hers, she never mentioned this place. Not long, just a couple years. After you went off to wherever you went to dash dot. New York. I went to New York. Yeah, that place, I took an apprenticeship in the bakery in the next town over for a year. Followed by six years of culinary training. Geez. I interrupt involuntarily. Six years? I know, right. But yeah, six years, then a degree in business, which was four years, but luckily, I could do both at the same time, 
so it didn't take as long as you'd have expected. For some it can take far longer. What made you start baking in the first place? I don't remember you being much of a baker. Oh, that. She stares down into her cup for a couple seconds before answering. I don't dash dot. The timer on her phone goes off. Our chill time is up. Velma grabs her mug, downs the remainder of her tea, and then goes to get the dough from the fridge. Could you grab two rolling pins from the drawer? Automatically, and with the flourish of one who had done this a thousand times before, she lightly dusts the counter with flour. She turns on the oven, hands me one of the dough balls, and takes one of the rolling pins. Roll to about two or three millimeters thick. Then use this, dash she presses a star-shaped cookie cutter into the palm of my hand to cut the cookies into shape, then put them onto that baking tray. This task doesn't take long, I only needed to cut 16 cookies, so Velma moves me on to making the filling while she finishes off her bit, hers are a bit more complicated, each cookie has a star-shaped hole in it, and puts the cookies into the oven. I had to whisk the butter, sugar, and some of the jam together, terrifying. Velma had to help by grabbing the electric whisk from me after I screamed and nearly dropped it into the mixture. Obviously, she teased me, and I had to swipe her nose with a little bit of the filling. We do manage to get the rest of the filling into a chow syringe, something about being better for the environment and doing the same thing as piping bags, and onto the cookies, once they'd baked and cooled, of course. Velma separates the cookies into a couple decorated paper bags with the piece of cake logo on them and hands them to me. These are for you to give to your family. And maybe any friends you still have around here. I think they'll appreciate this more than any store-bought gift. I handed one back to her. Here, friend, have some homemade cookies. Her grin is priceless. She escorts me to the door and opens it for me. We're both startled by how dark it is outside. I can drive you back home if you want. It is quite far from here, right? She glances at her watch. Or you could just stay over. It's really up to you. We all glanced at each other and immediately knew what to do, scatter. I saw Fred grab Daphne's hand and pull her towards the main house. Scooby leapt into Shaggy's arms and the pair started to run into the forest. Knowing that the forest is the worst possible route to safety, I grabbed the collar on Shaggy's neck and turned them around to safety. The calling circle had been too kicked up by the panic to send his back by force through this route. We're just going to have to negotiate or uncover the real villain behind all of this, although I doubt there is one. So, safety it is. I glanced at the ghost again still pissed and moving towards us, and ran in the same direction as the others. 
My mind whirred as I ran, trying to solve this issue we've created for ourselves. We can't corner the guy, how would you even corner a ghost to negotiate, and if we did, he'd probably be too angry and lash out at us. So, what do we do? For about 20 minutes, we just ran around the main house. There was one corridor we all got stuck on. I saw Daphne, separated from Fred, across the hall, then Shaggy running from one room into another with the ghost hot on his heels, soon followed by the ghost running from the same room with Shaggy on his heels. It was all increasingly bizarre, so I stood still in the middle and watched and waited. I wasn't sure what for, however, until I saw it. The ghost was starting to get tired, and he paused at each doorway to catch his breath, we were wearing the guy down. If we could make him absolutely exhausted to the point of submission, that is our shot to solve all of this. I saw Daphne rounding the corner again and relay this information to her as briefly as I could. She smiled and gave me a thumbs up. Leave it to me, she called back. I could hear her calling out for the others to help not long after that. Given that my stamina was even worse than the ghosts, I decided to create a capture circle. I'd read about it in the divination book, but I had accidentally left it on the forest floor, so I had to do it from memory. I dragged an armchair from one of the rooms, I thought the ghost would appreciate the place to rest after all that working out put a circle of fine to medium sand around it and left a small entrance for the ghost. It's relatively simple so it didn't take too long. All I had to do now was wait for them to shepherd the ghost here. Meanwhile, I set up a couple obstacles for the ghost to wear him out even more. Sure enough, a few minutes later, Daphne backed the ghost into the armchair with Shaggy, Scooby, and Fred surrounding the ghost from the other side. The ghost didn't seem to even think twice before flopping down onto the chair. You punks. He sighed, finally letting me sit, are you? He glanced down at me completing the sand circle and laughed. You guys really have no idea what you're doing, do you? Just tell me why you're haunting me. Fred growled angrily. The ghost leaned back into the chair with a smirk. No. He kicked the sand and broke the circle. When I glanced back at the chair, he was gone. Chapter 8 I must say, Velma makes a wonderful host. For me, anyway, I can see why she might struggle if there were more people. She led me up some stairs, unlocked the door labeled private, and let me in. Inside, it's a wonderfully small apartment. From the hallway where I'm standing, I can see a tiny terrace, barely large enough to hold a glass patio table and two chairs, facing away from the shopfront for some privacy, overlooking the park. The loft space had been turned into a delightful viewing area reminiscent of childhood blanket forts, and plants and books spilled from every conceivable surface. 
I genuinely wouldn't be surprised if this apartment was a carbon sink. Velma clicks on the fairy lights, filling the entire space, as small as it is, with such a cozy and comfortable atmosphere that I never want to leave. Do you like it? Velma's voice is nervous, quiet. As if she's never had someone over before? I love it. Her smile at my words is just as dripe grid the Juklohaj. Gather yourself together. You are a grown-ass lady, use words, I say internally. She looked pretty. Velma fixes us both up mugs of grocery store mulled wine, as if we hadn't had enough sugar and alcohol already, while her kitchen fills with the scent of macaroni and cheese. We cozy up on the viewing platform with our mugs while we wait. I glance down at my mug. Is there alcohol in this? Velma checks the label on the bottle. A little. It's 8%, lower than most, for mulled wine. Getting toasted dash. I raise my mug into the air, and old friends. Velma laughs and clinks her mug against mine. To old friends. There's a faint click from the kitchen. We glance at each other, and she insists on getting it and on not needing help. Velma gets up and returns a few minutes later bearing two plates piled high with cheesy goodness and forks. Well, it wasn't exactly good for our bodies, but who cares? You were a good help in the kitchen today. Velma says, eyes flitting up from her plate where she was picking at her food. Far more helpful than Claire's sister has been for the past month anyway. What's her name? We're both quite drunk at this point. Velma laughs. You know what, I don't know. She waves around her fork. I think something like Emily? What a great boss you are. I laugh. Oh, wait till you hear about this. Velma hates a huge bite out of her mac and cheese, chews it quickly, and launches into the anecdote. You know how the bakery has staff-only Wi-Fi, which is basically just my personal Wi-Fi network I gave Emily access to? Yeah. She'd given me the password for it earlier. Yeah, well, I caught her using the Wi-Fi to stream the entirety of Stranger Things when she should have been working. And I'm pretty certain she's used the utility room in the back to hook up with her boyfriend because it started to smell weird recently. Gross. My face scrunches up. Hooking up at work, just, ugh. I know, right. And that's not the dash. My phone starts to buzz in my pocket, and I realize I hadn't checked it for nearly the entire day. Sorry, I've got to take this call, do you mind if I? Not at all, go ahead. Velma waves her hand around, picks up the little dish of kumquat, and starts slowly eating them as I pick up the call. It's mom on the other line sounding incredibly frantic. 
Daphne, where are you? Why aren't you answering your phone? Do you know how late it is? I glance at my watch. It's 11 o'clock. So why aren't you home? Do you know how worried you've made your father and I? Sorry. I don't know what else to say. Do you need to be picked up? Where are you? I cover my phone with my hand. Is it all right if I spend the night here? Wasn't that the plan already? She grins. I L dash. Thank you. I uncovered the phone again. No, Mum, I don't need a lift, I'm an adult, remember? I'm staying over at a friend's house, so I'll see you in the morning. Bye, Mum. Daphne Dash. I end the call before she can say anything to protest. Now, where were we? We continued our swapping of anecdotes until into the early hours of the morning, where we found ourselves far too drunk and tired to be able to safely make it down the ladder to Velma's bedroom or the pull-out sofa in the living room. We ended up simply tidying the plates a little and just pushing them to the side so that we could both snuggle under the blanket to sleep. Velma falls asleep before I do her presence diminishing to simply a heat source and the occasional whisper of a sigh in her sleep. She looks so peaceful when she sleeps. Like all the weight has been pulled off her chest and left in the waking world for her to come back to when she returns. It's hard to imagine what she's been through. I went through a fraction of what she went through with her, and I left this crummy town as soon as the rains loosened. She remained here, reminders of what happened attacking her from every single angle, I imagine. I suppose dreams are an escape, as fleeting as they are. I miss the times when we used to just talk about everything, even just the dumbest dreams or whatever the hell Shaggy and Scooby had been up to that week. One time they turned Fred's pencil case into a fishbowl with Fred's calculator as the fish. I think they tried to give the calculator CPR after it broke from all the water, which was literally just them punching the calculator into the desk, but that's a story for another time. I wish I could tell her all this. We're just not as close as we were. I take my phone and start scrolling through the emails. Might as well get some work done while I'm still awake. I glance at Velma's face, just to make sure the light hasn't woken her up. It hasn't. I wonder what she's dreaming about now. Well, that was Dash Dot. Fred started, after an eternity of silence. Fred. You didn't tell me you had guests over. A man in a slick navy suit and red tie approached us with open arms. He had jet black hair sprinkled with gray hairs and a pair of thick green-tinted glasses perched atop his nose. He carried about himself an air of someone who knew he would be overseeing the situation already and every conceivable conclusion ended in him obtaining something. 
Why the mayor of Crystal Cove was walking around Fred's house evaded me until the following conversation played out. The man dropped his hands onto Fred's shoulders and stared intently into Fred's eyes. And there's no chance you've forgotten about tonight's gala. Isn't that right, Fred? Ah. And it's quite an important night tonight as well. We have a certain special guest who may bring great positive change to Crystal Cove. My dearest and only son would never forget about such an important day, now would he? Fred squirmed uncomfortably and said nothing. It was perfectly clear that the mayor's dearest son had, in fact, forgotten. With a smirk, the man whirled around and started walking off in the same direction from which he had appeared. Martha left your tux hanging in your closet, so be ready by nine. He quickly popped his head around the door again to say, Your friends are welcome, of course, as long as you all clear this up by then. And with the sound of short, clipped fading into the distance, he was gone. When were you guys going to tell me that his dad dashed out? I gestured to Fred, is the mayor of Crystal Cove? They stared at me blankly. You didn't know? Daphne asked. No? Well, you do now. Dash, she turned away from me and back to Fred, now, about this gala. Yeah, sorry about that, I forgot. Fred self-consciously rubbed the back of his neck. I'm really sorry, Dash, Dot. Yeah, yeah, it's not us you need to apologize to, Dash, Dot. Daphne waved away his apology then clapped her hands together. We have a deadline now, so we better get moving because I don't want to be late to the gala, and we need at least an hour to get ready so we all need to hustle up. We? Daphne ignored my question and instead followed it up with her own. Can you make another summoning circle for Imes and Phoebe? Here? She nodded. I can try. Daphne didn't explain her plan to us and instead simply instructed us on what our individual roles were. I would be the one in charge of summoning and banishing, Shaggy would be watching for any signs of danger with Scooby, Fred was going to be the leader but let Daphne take over when she gave him the signal. I could tell Daphne wasn't telling us something about her plan on purpose, but she seemed to know what she was doing so I let it go. She also seemed strangely fascinated in the lives of nature spirits and I told her as much as I could remember from my research while I set up the summoning circle. I tweaked the circle a little after what I learned from the last three so that we would be on the outside and the spirit trapped inside the circle as it would be safer for both us and Fred's dad. Well, the mayor. I decided that the ornate oak closet in the corridor would be the cabinet to an oak tree we would get in here, and so with a little help from the rest of the gang, pulled it away from the wall and into the middle of the hallway so I can make a full circle of sand around it. I'm seen to be napping when they were summoned, but their snores were clearly fake, 
and a snow globe smacking them in the face seemed to rouse them rather swiftly, Fred got quite restless and impatient. What do you meddling kids want? I thought I told you to leave me alone, he growled at us. We really need your help. We're completely over our heads and we could use some help from a mighty and knowledgeable oak like yourself? Fred pleaded. Why should I help a pair of snotty-nosed kids when I could be chatting up a nymph, H.M.? Apparently one of the Hamadryades is having another party. They started to fade away at those words, presumably to go chasing after the aforementioned nymph. Wait. Dash Daphne stepped forward so she's almost in the circle, I can make it worth your time. Imes's face returned to the cabinet. You can, can you? Yes. Daphne unclipped the necklace around her neck and let it dangle from her hand. It was a relatively simple gold chain with a little pendant jewel hanging from it. You like gold and diamonds, right? But dash. Fred started to interject. Daphne shot him a look, and he fell silent. Would this be worth your time? Daphne asked Imes, but his answer was already clear on his face. Bring it here. Imes's eyes didn't part from the necklace. Without hesitation, Daphne motioned to step forwards. I instinctively shot my arm out to stop her. She merely shook her head and whispered, I have to, before brushing aside my arm and stepping into the circle. I'm stretched out a hand from the cabinet which Daphne dropped the necklace into. They inspected the necklace for a few moments before remarking that it was in fact genuine, something they seemed surprised at. The hand retracted into the cabinet with the necklace and the face finally glanced up to look at us. Thankfully, Daphne had stepped out of the circle at this point and was out of immediate danger, and I could let out the breath I hadn't realized I had been holding. So, what do you want to know? Imes asked us. 